If you're gay, then you're gay. You don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 4th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight on Talk to Vosh, our New York correspondent reports on the just-released documentary, Gay Chorus Deep South. Steve Pride gets the 411 on the gayer side of the peppy conservative singing group Up With People. And Michael Taylor Gray gets the lowdown on a gay country music singer in Storytellers. Are you detecting a musical theme tonight? Sing it, sister. But before all that, the honesty. Well done. Well, Michael Taylor Gray, in a move that surprises nobody, the Trump administration has renewed attacks on the LGBTQI community here in the United States. What happened this week? Well, as of November 1st, 2019, at 2.40 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Trump administration will allow for LGBTQ discrimination in adoption and health care. That seems pretty big to me. Keep in mind that November 1st is the kickoff for National Adoption Month. So now that we're in National Adoption Month, we are lessening the probability that children can get adopted by loving families? Exactly. Adoption agencies and other programs that receive HHS grants can now reject same-sex couples and rainbow families, that's their language, rainbow families, on the basis of religious freedom. Now, just a reminder, HHS is the Health and Human Services Department, and rainbow families apparently is a term that covers anybody with an LGBTQ member in it? Yeah, apparently. So that's my guess. So now that we have codified legal discrimination, here's the kicker. There's supposed to be 30 days to allow for comment on rulings such as this. It's supposed to be proposed, but the Trump administration has already said, you know what, we're going to start enforcing it starting today, November 1st. If you receive funding from the Health and Human Services Department, you are now legally allowed to discriminate in any way that you want. Against LGBTQ people, you can deny them service. Now, this story came to us literally almost moments after I was online enjoying photos of my great niece and great nephew, whom my nephew, uh, Christopher, and his husband, Justin, adopted over this past year. And it just became official not even a year ago. And I'm looking at my great niece and great nephew who now have this amazing life with two loving parents, my nephew and his husband, who I'm going to be spending Thanksgiving with in November in North Carolina. And I'm thinking, 
if this had happened prior to their starting the adoption process, might this have impeded them? I would even say prior to finishing the adoption process, it may have halted everything. Yeah. So these children are having a a good life. They're with two loving dads. And now we're denying the opportunity of that for other people. And this ruling goes farther. It also allows for discrimination in health care. And I know that the Trump administration has made a big deal out of ending HIV. And now we are cutting funding to the people most vulnerable to contracting HIV and AIDS. And I'm curious how those two goals align. So the people who are most likely to contract this don't have funding to fight against this. It's not about consequence or ramifications for them. They just want to strike down that they, I mean, the Trump administration, including Mike Pence, want to just strike down anything that Obama had put into place prior to them coming into power with this administration and winning this election. Anything that Obama did to put in to expand the LGBTQ rights within our community and within just our landscape of a country, they want to strike down. Well, what we're doing is we, I'm not going to include us in that, what the Trump administration is doing is making sure that the, we, that we, the LGBTQI community, are being othered. We are being set aside. We are being ostracized. And we're going to have to keep fighting back against that because this is just, to me, absolutely ridiculous. There is no evidence, no scientific evidence other than things brought up by hate groups that is completely biased that raising a child in a same-sex marriage has any detrimental effects on them. Oh, yes. And speaking of hate groups, the president of Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, which has been named a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, praised the new regulation and, quote unquote, thanks to President Trump, charities will be free to care for needy children and operate according to their religious beliefs and the reality that children do best in a home with a married mom and dad. I certainly don't know what reality he is living in, but that's utterly false by all scientific evidence. And one of the arguments that they're using is that adoption agencies would rather close their doors than serve the LGBTQI community, which really lets you know where their heart is. Right. Let's detail this so that we understand the scope of what is happening as of November 1st, 2019. Other programs affected by this discriminatory regulation. Elder services. Head Start, Refugee Resettlement, HIV services, which you mentioned, programs for runaway and homeless youth. That one really, really hit home. I'm shaking my head over here because it just seems so unbelievable, and yet nothing seems unbelievable anymore. And I'm curious, I'm a transgender woman. I broke my foot recently. Had I gone to an urgent care or an emergency room where a doctor felt that religiously they could not treat me? Is my trans broken foot different than everybody else's broken foot? I don't understand that. And yet here I am with the possibility of being denied services. This is literally going to cost lives of people in the LGBTQI community. So I'm curious if people want to do something about this. We talk about these things a lot and people say, what can I do? Well, one thing that you can do if you're interested, you can leave a comment for the Trump administration. And how would somebody go about doing that? Well, you can contact the White House on uh, two different lines, phone lines. There's the comments line at 1202 456 1111. 
That's 1-202-456-1111. The switchboard, if you want to get to one of your representatives, a senator or a House of Representatives for your district, call 1-202-456-1414. That's the switchboard at 1-202-456-1414. If you want to do some snail mail, you can reach the White House at the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20500 and online go to whitehouse.gov and you can fill out an online form to send a message to the White House. Thank you very much for that information. The thing about this is that we know these discriminatory policies affect people in myriad ways and one of those ways is poverty. What did we learn about poverty this week? Well, we have learned that with regards to poverty within our LGBTQI plus community, that according to NBC News from an October 29th report by Tim Fitzsimmons, almost 30% of bisexual women and trans people live in poverty. Yet gay men and lesbians were found to have similar poverty rates to their straight counterparts. Now, I want people to think about that. That means if you know three trans people in your life or three bisexual women in your life, one out of one of those people is likely living in poverty. The poverty rate in the U.S., I believe, is under twelve thousand dollars for a single person family. Twelve thousand four hundred and ninety dollars per year for a single person household. So, Chloe Corcoran, if I'm making twelve thousand four hundred and ninety one dollars. Does that mean I'm above the poverty line? Just barely, and you make it. So it's difficult to see as a trans woman knowing how many people are struggling out there. And what do you think contributes to this state of affairs? Well, I I think a lot of it just has to do with discrimination outside of our community and within our community. Why the disparity? This is some of the conjecture that came about in this article, which was uh, conducted by the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. Why the disparity? Well, experiences of discrimination, impact of minority stress, and impact of mental health concerns that come from experiencing discrimination. And I can tell you that trying to find a job as a trans woman is extremely difficult. And there's privilege in passing, so-called passing privilege, There's privileges in education. There's so many different privileges out there, and a lot of us don't have them, and we really struggle. And then you go into a hiring office where people know that it's okay to discriminate in so many different ways, and we can throw it back and talk about the Supreme Court case that's up right now saying whether it's okay to discriminate against trans and LGB people. It just becomes a what are we supposed to do with this kind of How do we keep fighting back? And we have to. We need to really rely on our allies for a lot of this. Part of the survey really focused on the disparity with our bisexual brothers and sisters. You know, why do bisexuals experience higher rates of poverty? Robin Oaks, who's a bisexual activist, uh, she stated that it's pretty typical for bisexual people's experience to be lumped in with gay and lesbian experience. Bisexual people have a much harder time finding community and safe space. Even when there's an established LGBTQ community, it's often not fully inclusive of bisexual identified people. And I had to take a look in my heart and my experience and my views of past and understand where I've gone, where I've come from and where I've come to in terms of my thoughts on bisexual people, especially bisexual men as a gay man, as I identify as a gay man. 
And I've had some, you know, some not fair views. Mm-hmm. And they always say, oh, but the guy can't be bisexual. You know, if he's going to be with another man, he's gay. I'm like, hmm. That's discrimination. Yeah. And being able to be introspective about that is really important. A lot of us have struggled with the question of, am I queer enough? Am I trans enough? Am I X enough? And for bisexual people who are in a seemingly um, heterosexual relationship but still have a same-sex attraction, they're still bisexual and they are still part of the community. And that's important to realize. But with the viewpoints of so many people out there who are struggling to accept bisexuality into the community and wondering if they're really X enough, it becomes hard, as the article says, for people to find community, for people to find social support, for people to even find networking opportunities within our own community. Yes, and and let's look at these hard numbers in order to remind ourselves how important it is to, to accept one another, to reach out to one another and to be inclusive. Yes. And one of the ways we can be inclusive is by using appropriate pronouns and language. So on a positive note, something happened this week in the arts world. And let's talk about that for a little bit. What happened? Tell us a little bit about this. Wow. You After starting off with our initial story with HHS and the Trump administration and they're dealing with adoption and health services, The National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences announced for the 47th Annual Daytime Emmy Awards a call for entries that include inclusive language for gendered acting categories and other changes that they're incorporating. Performers eligible in gendered acting categories are encouraged to enter the one that best fits their gender identity. Now, in particular... For the Primetime Emmys, non-binary performer Asia Kate Dillon, who uh, is best known for her portrayal of the white supremacist Brandy in Orange is the New Black, they entered the Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series category in keeping with actor being a historically non-gendered word. And going along with this, some of the categories have been combined into an ungendered award. So I believe it was the young performer is now in place instead of young actor and young actress. Yes, younger actor and actress categories have been combined into a singular non-gendered younger performer in a drama series category. Well, I think this is fantastic news. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to be inclusive. It's a great way to help society better understand uh, pronouns and gender identities and the way that people live their lives. Yes, and, and just note that this is not the first time they're doing that. The Younger Performer in a Drama Series category joins the previously existing non-gendered children and animation performer categories. Well, I think this is a great step, and it contrasts a little bit with some of the other things that we hear about in the news today. So I'm congratulations. I think this is great for everybody involved. I, I want to quote Adam Sharp, who's the president and CEO of the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences. He said, our academy is determined to remain on the forefront of inclusiveness in our industry, and we're grateful to GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, founded in 1985, and other organizations and voices who give their time and wisdom wisdom, to help shape our competitions. Bravo. Bravo. That's all I can really say about that. And it contrasts a little bit with what we have recently seen from Delta. This just in. Just in. (laughs) (laughs) This just in, yes. Delta Airlines is censoring gay scenes from in-flight movies. 
that seems a bit much. Did you know that Elton John is gay? Well, not according to Delta Airlines because they censored Rocket Man, a biopic about his life. A biopic about a gay man's life. Tell me, please tell me what they removed. Well, passengers noticed that a kiss between two men was not in the in-flight entertainment. Yet, a scene where Elton John's manager abuses him was left in. Now, that's a message right there. And in a not-so-subtle message, we see so many, so much... We see so much violence in our lives that it becomes normalized by seeing it on the screen. So by normalizing violence against um, the LGBTQI community, but not normalizing love within that community, is a pretty dangerous precedent. Yeah, I, you you can you can't show a chaste kiss, regardless. Even what if it was a passionate kiss? I don't care what kind of kiss it was between these two men, between Elton John and, and his manager at that time. But you can't show that. But you can show us being abused. That's a horrible message to put out there. And it's also been seen in the movie... Booksmart. Thank you, Booksmart. It's also been seen in the movie Booksmart where different words were removed, but others were included. That's true. Now, Booksmart censored a lesbian sex scene that director Olivia Wilde said was integral to the plot. And speaking of the words that you mentioned, the airline also censored the words vagina and lesbian while leaving in expletives like the F word. I think, again, that that sends a message. Delta, I know you can do better. I'm expecting you to do better. I know the policy is under review. Please do the right thing with this because you have an opportunity here to spread inclusiveness and spread awareness of the LGBTQI community. And that's The Honest Tea. A stamp from Margaret Mead coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Philadelphia in 1901, Margaret Mead became a leading cultural anthropologist of her time. As curator of ethnology at the American Museum of Natural History, she published the bestseller Coming of Age in Samoa. Mead often made controversial comments on women's rights, sexual morality, environmental pollution, and world hunger. Her close relationship with fellow anthropologist Ruth Benedict was profound and long-lasting. On May 28, 1998, the U.S. Postal Service issued a 32-cent stamp commemorating Meade as part of its Celebrate the Century series. Meade's daughter ended up living in Hancock, New Hampshire, and in July 1999, the post office of that city held a touching ceremony. They presented Meade's daughter, Mary Bateson, and her daughter, Savan Martin Kasajian, a portrait based on Meade's stamp. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Soda Naboule, in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Dennis Shepard, Matthew Shepard's father, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine.
welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. That song coming out of break was from the film Gay Chorus Deep South. Led by conductor Dr. Tim Salig and joined by the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, the award-winning documentary Gay Chorus Deep South is the timely story of 300 brave singers who traveled from Mississippi to Tennessee through the Carolinas, bringing a message of love and acceptance to those fighting intolerance. And our Vash Bodhi caught up with the filmmakers at the Tribeca Film Festival. This is Vash Bodhi with another TTV. Talk to Vash. Today, I am at the Tribeca Film Festival on the red carpet to speak with the creative team behind Gay Chorus Deep South, a documentary which shows how a little courage and a lot of music can change the hearts and minds of many. I start with the film's director, David Charles Rodriguez. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing great. Congratulations on the film. Why did you decide to do this film? I was really looking for a story that could help deal with the divisiveness that the country's facing right now, and there's nothing more powerful than music to do that. So when I learned about the tour that the chorus was having in the southern states of America, I thought that could be the most beautiful way to use entertainment to really touch people's hearts and to really prove that we're actually not that divided after all. This film is about love. What was the most surprising place that you found love in making this film? At a Southern Baptist church in Greenville, South Carolina. It was the first time ever in history that a gay chorus performed at a Southern Baptist church. And what happened, you guys will have to see in the film. <laughs> and this film is also about having really difficult conversations. How were you able to get people to have some of these difficult conversations? I learned, especially making this film and, and working with the chorus, that the best way to be heard is if you listen. So we went there with open hearts and an open mind, and we listened to everyone. I even interviewed every single protester that was at the performances, and I spoke to them. And, and, and treated them as human beings because that's what we all are. And in the end, we all want the same things, which are family, togetherness, and a place that we can all belong. If you could summarize this film with a hashtag, what would it be? Y'all means all. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Have a great time tonight. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? I'm Tim Seelig. I'm the artistic director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. I'm Chris Verdugo. I am the executive director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. What was it like being on tour for this project? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it was life-changing really and we, and we used that probably way too much this really was we went from san francisco to the south thinking one thing and we came back with a completely different idea that's remarkable so what was your favorite song that you guys sang while on tour i think my favorite song was a holly near piece that is i ain't afraid of your churches your jesus or your bible i'm afraid of what you do in the name of your god that's a very long title for a song but i'm sure <laughs> I'll give you the title, I Ain't Afraid. What did you find was the most impactful song? You know, the one that, that was most impactful was uh, More Friends Than You Know. It was because we sang to a lot of youth and a lot of people that feel very alone in the South. And that told them that it's not just us, but if you look around, you'll find the friends that you need. And you? Truly Brave. It's a mashup of True Colors and Brave and it's really inspiring. It just swells to this moment that it touches something in your core, and it touches you every single time you hear the song. It's just such an anthem about really standing up and being who you are, being your authentic self, being courageous, being brave, and knowing that you were loved for that. I think the two songs go a little hand in hand, actually. This film is also about love. Where was the most surprising place that you found love? I would say it had to be 
Greenville, South Carolina, at the First Baptist Church of Greenville, South Carolina, which is really the the, the ultimate moment in the film. Yeah, you know, I want to add this sort of. On one of the pre-trips, uh, we met with the police department from Knoxville, who was also doing our security. And this moment isn't in the film, but we had a rather contentious moment with uh, their, their, uh, one of their police members. Um, and he said something to the effect of, we really don't care what you all think about us in California. And so that really kind of started this anxiety between us. And I didn't know if we had chosen the right company to come with us on tour. Halfway through the tour, he comes up to me uh, and he says, I have invited my entire family to the concert tonight after seeing what you have done the past four days on the road. And that's how change happens, just by showing up and showing people why, why we're really here and opening your hearts. And for me, like that was a moment that sort of just coalesced everything we had been working on was to go, here's the transformation right before my eyes. So if you could summarize the movie in a hashtag, what would it be? Go see it. That's the short hashtag. And just let it Im immerse yourself in it and the stories that are told and enjoy the music, but mostly the stories. Um, yeah, that's my hashtag. Go see it. I can't add to hashtag go see it. <laughs> hashtag go love it. Perfect, you guys. Hey, Rocket Man. How are you? I'm good. So I'm talking to Lance Bass. What brings you out here tonight? To support this uh, film festival and the Gay Man's Chorus. You know, I think it's so incredible what they do. The messaging that they bring to all these towns that need to see these guys is, is inspiring. You know, as a, a little kid from Mississippi, I would have loved to have seen that growing up. Well, when you came out, it was a very, very big deal. There was a generation of people that all of a sudden had to be confronted with the fact that someone that they loved was gay. Have you felt that impact? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have felt that impact. Uh, when I came out, it was a different time. It was very scary and, and a career killer. Um, but I just couldn't hold it in anymore. So. You know, I, I just threw my hands up and I was like, what, whatever happens, happens. But it went very positive uh, when I came out and the support I got and, and to see a younger generation feel comfortable enough to say, oh my gosh, you know what, I'm gay too, just because I influenced that, you know, with my story. So, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible. And if I can help just one person out there love themselves a little more, I'm happy. This film is about love. During your coming out process, where was the surprising place that you found love and acceptance? Oh, uh, good question. I mean, the surprising one was the entertainment industry. Um, you know, it's you know, there's a lot of gay community in the entertainment industry, but it's still very homophobic, like ridiculously homophobic, and especially music. So I think I was most surprised by the industry really having my back. Um, the Jay Leno's of the world, you know, not making fun of it, making it a positive story. You know, I thought the comedians were gonna have a field day with it, but they actually made the story positive so that they could influence, a, you know, some young kids out there to become themselves. Perfect, perfect. Thank you very much. You have a really wonderful night. It's really a pleasure to meet you. This is Vosh Bodhi, and you have been listening to David Charles Rodriguez, Tim Selig, Chris Verdugo, and special guest Lance Bass, talking about the documentary Gay Chorus Deep South and our journey towards love, unity, and equality for all. To find out how you can see Gay Chorus Deep South, visit gaychorusdeepsouth.com. Remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV. Talk to Vosh. Gay Chorus Deep South is currently playing at a theater near you. Next, Steve Pride talks with a gay man who once joined a singing and dancing anti-gay conservative cult. Since 1965, the Peppy Clean Cut singing group Up With People has sung to over 20 million people worldwide, performed at four Super Bowl halftime shows, and been parodied on The Simpsons and South Park. 
a favorite of both Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. The smile-drenched youngsters are often seen as the embodiment of conservative American ideals. My name's Eric Roos. I traveled in Up With People my first year in 1980-81. I had had a first year of college and it had not gone well. I'd been kind of a big fish in a small pond in high school, best little boy in the world because, oops, I was gay and that was not going to be okay in my world. I was going to be everybody's favorite little boy. I was going to be Mr. Achiever. So then I go to college, and meanwhile, you know, my libido is stirring, and I'm freaking out. So I had a little breakdown, and when my parents said, you should go to Up With People, I thought, well, at least I could delay whatever's going on. I'll just disappear into this performing group. I never even saw a show. I drove down to L.A. They were doing a Super Bowl. I met some people. They interviewed me. I got accepted, because none of us are accepted based on our talent. And you'd know that if you ever saw a show. We are moving and we won't stand still. We have got a mighty job to fill. The world's all waiting to be remade by every girl and a young play. The kind of ridiculous and tragic irony about my experience and I think so many of the guys in my age cohort in Up With People is... There were lots of homos around, and it was an open environment. I mean, you could be gay, at least in the confines of that little microcosm. So Up With People goes around, all around the world, recruiting boys who like to dress up in tights and prance around on stage. So you get all these boys together in this environment, and there is no gay. There is no homosexuality. Up With People pretends that literally that doesn't exist. We were under strict orders that we can't have sex, but the only sex that you can't have, supposedly, is with girls, if you're a boy. There's room for the doers and dreamers, and for those who don't have a name. Everybody is different, but they want to be treated the same. You and me were just... That was because it was inconceivable that you would be having sex with other boys, even though when we stayed in host families, we were almost always sleeping in the same beds with these other boys. It was so confounding because so many of us were gay, but we were operating in this incredibly restrictive environment where we were expected to adhere to this rigid, very controlled idea of what it was to be a young American male. Aggressive, hyper-masculine, clean-cut, well-scrubbed, we're going to save the world from communism and any kind of deviance. Which way, America? Which way, America? Which way, America? Which way to go? I remember that I fell in love my second year with a boy in the cast, and he was completely unaware of it. As was I, in so many ways, I didn't know what love was. I knew all that was happening was when this boy would get off the bus, 
I didn't know where I was or what to think or what to do. And it was so strange because often we were rooming together. And for some reason, we were always put in the same bed. And oddly, we always would end up kind of our bodies slammed against each other in the night. It was very innocent, and nothing was ever said in the daylight, in the, the harsh light of reality, I suppose. That feeling of coming apart maybe part of coming of age. That feeling of coming apart maybe part of coming of age. It was the first time that I was really around a lot of other gay guys. I knew they were gay because it was the first time I sensed a gay dar in me. But I was so terrified that in no way did I ever reach out to them. It started to happen, though, that I knew they were reaching out to each other. And I felt, and I feel, an incredible sense of cowardice now that these guys were able to in some way connect And I was such, I don't know, I think a coward, so still wrapped up in my own idea that I needed to pass, that I was still playing the good boy to such a degree that I did not take the opportunity to at least connect. I wanted the leaders to love me. I wanted still to be the best little boy. I was still playing that idiotic game. And yet, one of my best friends... He fell in love with a guy from South America in our cast, and it ended up kind of blowing apart, and they were forcibly separated in a way that was shaming and humiliating. And because they were not caught in a sexually compromised situation, they could not be sent home. But the very fact of their love, their deep obvious friendship and the fact that they had tried to rig the system so that they could be roomed together more than was random. When management found out about that, they hit the roof and they never were able to room together again, which, you know, okay, fine, no big deal. But it was these guys were beaten down to within an inch of their life, basically in front of the whole cast. Everyone knew about it. It was never directly spoken about, though. It was this sick, underground, dirty, shaming every day people the kind you meet every day just walking down the street every day heroes without even trying to be we lionize heroes in this culture we lionize firefighters and soldiers and people who do acts of physical bravery, and that's fine. Whatever. You want to call that a hero? That's fine. Heroes are people who take profound risks. So many people project on gay people that were weak, you know? (laughs) Show me someone who's come out of the closet, and I'm going to show you someone who's braver than just about anyone on earth. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Up, up, up with people. You meet them wherever you go. Up, up with people. They're the best kind of folks.
and a lot more people who care. There'd be a lot less people to worry about, and a lot more people who care. Oh yeah, it's a lot less people to worry about, and a lot more people who care. These days, Eric Roos owns the San Francisco grooming products company Nancy Boy, and only has a song in his heart. The documentary Smile Till It Hurts, the Up With People story, can be rented for streaming on Vimeo. Don't go away. We'll be right back. A commemorative stamp for Ruth Benedict, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On October 20th, 1995, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, the U.S. Postal Service issued a 46-cent Ruth Benedict stamp as part of the Great American series. They went on sale nationwide the next day. Benedict is regarded as one of the pioneers of cultural anthropology. She met Margaret Mead in 1922, and they became intimate friends bound by an intense intellectual collaboration. Both were considered the two most influential women anthropologists of their time, with Benedict being an expert in the culture of Japan. Benedict's landmark book, Patterns of Culture, sold over a million and a half copies and was printed in 14 languages. In 1998, a man pleaded guilty for counterfeiting over 9,000 Ruth Benedict stamps, telling the judge that the red and white stamp was easy to copy. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Soda Mabule, in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Let me know what it's like 
Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. That song coming out of break was Let Down Your Walls by Jack Nathan Harding from his album Cowboys and Tattoos. Jack is also an actor and a friend. So recently I sat down with him for a very tuneful edition of Storytellers. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Today I'm speaking with Jack Nathan Harding, a country music artist, releasing his first album, Cowboys and Tattoos. Give us a little rundown on who you are and where you're from. Well, as you just said, my name is Jack Nathan Harding. I'm originally from Odessa, Texas. I got out of there a long time ago, and now I consider myself a Los Angelino, definitely a California boy. How do you identify within the LGBTQI plus community? I'm an 11 on the Kinsey scale. I am super gay, super male, super... You've got superpowers. I have superpowers, yeah. Yeah, this is new language for a lot of us. This is part of how we're seen. The LGBTQI plus, and that includes allies, is part of how our community is visible. And so asking you particularly where you fall in within that spectrum I think, is is a way for others within our community to connect to you. So you're a gay male, an 11-plus gay male. (laughs) I love that. Jack Nathan Harding, what is it about country music that inspired you, an openly gay man, to tackle this genre head-on? Country music has always been a part of my life when I was younger. Country music was the people that are kicking you around in school, the bullies. So for a long time... I kind of rejected that when I was growing up because it represented the people that were mean to me, but it wasn't really representing the music, right? So I kind of, it got a bum rap. But there has always been something about country music, the stories, the singability. And and what I mean by that is you can play a country song on a piano, on a guitar, or even a cappella. But a lot of times with pop music, you try to play it on the piano, it it doesn't sound right. For me, country music is just a genre of music that allows the story to come out and the personality to come out far more than other types of music. 
Now, what was it about growing up and listening to country music that you connected to, but what kept you from really fully embracing it? The joy, I think, in country music, the dance, the fact that so much of this music is made to play in bars, to boot scoot around on a sawdust floor, so much of it is about joy, just pure joy. And I, I don't know I don't know how else to describe that. You're very soft spoken and you're very shy. So how does that translate with being a country music singer? Is this how you come out of your shell? I definitely think singing and performing, for sure, is how I come out of my shell. This time, making my own music is so much different than my entire career has been before as an actor because I'm embodying other people. I'm embodying these other characters. This time, it's actually me. And the songs I've written are actually songs that I wrote to cheer myself up, to order my thoughts, which is a big thing for me. I just find it's different and good and scary, but it's pure Jack. It's coming from me. The song, the lyrics, the music, the accompaniment, everything is just coming through me. And as someone who has been inside himself for many, many years, it's crazy and great and exhilarating to put something that's truly yourself. I'm not hiding behind a character. I'm not reading somebody else's words. It's just pure me pushing it out there, which as a 50-something-year-old dude, it's hard to wrap your head around. And so I just sort of do it and not think too much. Speaking of a 50-something-year-old dude, how does somebody in their early 50s summon up the courage to literally reinvent themselves? I don't think there was actually a point where I sat down and said, okay, today, right, I'm going to reinvent myself. Things push you this way and the other way. And I have always felt throughout my career, there's always been something deep down saying, this will be all you want it to be if you can just be yourself. And I'm sorry, but that's about the hardest thing for someone like me to do, because when you're being yourself, there's no hiding. There's no tree to hide behind. There's no, you can't blame this person or that person. It's all you. Love it, hate it. I don't know, but it's just pure me. I see the excitement in your eyes, and I can see that sense of self-discovery, like you're seeing yourself outside of yourself for the first time. Take us back in time before this moment when you decided, I'm going to release a country music album. I'm just going to be Jack Nathan Harding in front of the world. Before that, what were the other incarnations where you were maybe, there wasn't Jack up front. There was a character in front of Jack. Well, I think being an introvert has affected me greatly throughout my life. Not knowing that I was an introvert or not having the words to help myself understand myself, I just felt very lost. I felt very unheard. There was definitely, even though I could smile, I could be a successful actor, what have you, there was still this underlying reality that I walked around with that nobody ever saw, except for my husband or somebody very close, right? So being an introvert, acting, being other characters, for me, and I started back in community theater back in Odessa, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a way to safely express myself. And there was a safety in it because even if I was being big and over the top and crazy as a character, I was actually doing those things, but I still had the safety of, well, I'm playing Bob, the grocery store owner. He's doing that. He's saying that. And you know what? That worked for a while. Suffering from depression 
at the same time. For me, I found feeling unheard, not having anybody to get me, to understand, would definitely cause depression, and then you feel alone, and then you start to feel worthless, and we know how that spirals down. It had been a number of years doing the acting, and monetary success is great, right? Paying your bills, that's a good thing, right? I've gotten to the age of 50-something, and like nobody knows me. I just kept getting pushed into situations where I was feeling less and less comfortable being someone else, playing someone else, and I was getting more and more feelings of needing to be me. And again, late in life, this has been very weird going through this metamorphosis because I think for so long I told myself that something like this wouldn't happen. I set up obstacles, I think, to alleviate not getting to get to that goal. I had been writing music on my own. I remember writing in, we were in a loft in Los Angeles, writing country songs so that I was not going crazy. I was going crazy, actually, but I was writing country songs to order my thoughts to alleviate some of this. And I thought, I never saw myself singing them. I always thought that would be songs I would put into something. So, okay, I'll make a musical. And then I can play a role in the musical, and then I can sing these songs, right? I was kind of manufacturing a way to not have to be myself. And I did write the musical, and I put a bunch of songs in it, and it's out in the ether of producers and, and such right now. But what it did do is it gave me some confidence. It just felt like, well, I've been recording. Let's just try to put something out there. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers and IMRU. And you're listening to my interview with Jack Nathan Harding, an openly gay country music artist, releasing his debut album, Cowboys and Tattoos. When you search for love but heartaches, all that's found you, go on. When it all comes crashing down around you, When it feels like your roads come to an end Keep on walking, you'll find your way again Go on Go on When them dark clouds swarm around your head like bees So bad that you can hardly breathe. Go on. It might feel like miles across that great divide. There's something better waiting on the other side. Go on.
When you search for love but heartache's all that's found you kind of impact do you see this album having within our community? To me, the impact would be a dude, no, well, not necessarily a dude, a person who finds this music and gets a feeling of, there's a voice out there for me. There's a voice out there that actually talks about, sings about, thinks about the same things that I do. Because I never had that. I mean, I liked country music. I liked pop music. But I never, there was never any one person, group, that I felt, oh yeah, you're speaking for me. To me, that's the impact, which doesn't seem very grand and big. But had I this album to listen to as a kid, I may have been in country music earlier. I may have been inspired earlier because there's just that feeling of connection when you truly hear somebody singing about something that really touches you, that really internally deep down is you. You don't have to tweak your enjoyment of this song or you don't have to switch the pronoun of this song so that you can make it your own. I made it your own. I made it, right? If you're a gay dude, this is country music for you. I know a place It ain't too far Down a little back road Better than any bar I'm gonna take you there, buddy It ain't too pretty, dirt and barbed wire. Circle the taillights around the bonfire. Just getting started. Some rusty old boys fooling around Down at the stomping ground Show them how it's done for for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU, and you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. 
Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution and sparkle, Vosh Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night. Thank you.